Welcome to Dear Dio, your resource for honest advice and real authenticity for your journey from life as a pre-med to residency. I'm your host, Michael Garrison. I'm a fourth year osteopathic medical student. And today we're gonna be talking to Dr. Colin Hanock, DO and PGY1 general surgery resident at Wright State University, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So thank you so much, Colin, for chatting with me today. Do you mind just giving the listeners a little bit of background information on who you are, where you're from? Yeah, absolutely. And first, I get to give a shout out to you. Um, you know, going to medical school to me um, was something that was I, something I couldn't achieve. You know, looking back, at, if you told me at 15, 16, even 19 years old that uh, this is where I'd be, hearing and seeing just normal people who are hard workers and passionate for helping people in medicine out there doing it, you know, when you see someone doing something, then you can see yourself in their shoes. So the way that, you know, the world paints uh, doctors and surgeons, it's kind of this like unachievable thing. And uh, the fact that you're doing what you're doing to reach just normal, hardworking people, I think it's pretty cool. I'm really thankful to be on it. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So a little bit about me. Um, so I'm from Southern California and I grew up playing ice hockey. That's all I thought about was hockey, hockey, hockey. My dad was a college hockey player from the Midwest. It was super cold in the eighties and then drove out to Southern California. I met my mom who grew up there. And, uh, you know, I just learned all these awesome traits about teamwork and selflessness and grit and dedication um, and passion, you know, all through the sport of hockey and, and playing at a, a high level, you know, in my youth on a, a travel team, made great friends. And when I was 17, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I figured my way to the NHL and win a Stanley Cup was being an athletic trainer since I, I wasn't going to be big and strong enough to be a hockey player. So that's what initially led me out to college. I went to Michigan State University for the athletic training program. And I got cellulitis in my eye working for the wrestling team. And I went to the ER and I loved everyone I met in the ER uh, from the PA to the, to the nurse I was working with. I didn't meet a doc that day. I just thought it was pretty cool. So did a bit of research and talked to as many people as I could. And after doing some soul searching for a few months, uh, you know, two years in undergrad decided that, you know, I should switch to, to pre-med, you know, and kind of what I alluded to earlier about just believing in yourself. Um, you know, a little bit about me was I, I always wanted to be part of a team. I always wanted to be selfless in the work I do and be really passionate for it, you know, similar to, to those lessons that I learned growing up playing ice hockey and ultimately finding medicine and within medicine on my rotations, you know, finding surgery uh, kind of led me to where I am. So I uh, finished up at Michigan State, moved home, did a, a few years of catching up on some classes and, uh, you know, volunteering and ultimately went to a, a phenomenal osteopathic institution in Chicago, Midwestern University, and uh, had a great time there. I uh, realized I wanted to go into general surgery prior to applying to medical school. I heard about the scholarship, the health profession scholarship program that uh, the Navy, the Army and the Air Force each have their own scholarship program. Uh, I called the Navy office in LA. They never called me back. And I called the Air Force office and they called me back. So I decided I'd apply to the Air Force and uh, got into that program after getting into school and met my beautiful fiance uh, in medical school. And so we navigated a couples match situation that was non-traditional as I was a military match individual and she was a civilian NRMP match individual. And we ended up matching the same place here in Dayton, Ohio. So that's the, the long spiel about me and really excited to be here at this state of life. That's amazing. Like even just you 
giving that background with the hockey and different sports and stuff, I think that a lot of that kind of stuff gets overlooked by by medical students. But honestly, like the teamwork, and then you got the firsthand experience, even though you had a terrible situation, I cannot imagine having cellulitis on my eye. Um, But just being able to witness that kind of teamwork firsthand must have been really impactful for you to just switch your whole gear into medicine, because that's a big commitment. Yeah, it was definitely a big commitment. Um, You know, I was really fortunate. I had I had a roommate at the time who knew he wanted to be a doctor since he was like nine. And uh, this was just a, a, I I was in a fraternity and living in a big house and me and this kid kind of randomly roomed together. A great guy, one of the closest people to me to this day. He's currently in his chief year of of, uh, anesthesia residency. And this is one of these kids who's just a brainiac. You know, he went to like one of those special high schools that you have to like take a test in medical school to get into. He was like a pre-med for like human bio just rip roaring through all of his classes, taking all these big daunting classes like, you know, Orgo, you know, all all that stuff that in my mind, I was like, man, I barely, you know, got a B in high school physics. There's no way I could be a (laughs) pre-med. And with talking to him, you know, and really kind of really, I really do believe with this career, it just comes back to a few things. One of them is belief in yourself. One of them is, is unrelenting positivity and optimism. Um, and then just talking to people and figuring out what to do, figuring out when to do it, and ultimately having the belief that you'll get to where you want to be. And so there was a lot of factors, you know, about a decade ago to this day. Um, it's really beautiful how it all came together. But I remember at that time just being kind of scared and confused and hoping it would work out. Yeah, and I, I, that is so relatable, just being scared and confused, I think, in general, <laughs> but especially going into medicine. And having that optimism kind of mindset is so underrated going into medicine because I cannot tell you how many times I was told, you're never going to be a doctor. You might as well go and do something else. What else do you like? Like, you know how they try to frame it like, oh, I'm going to help you by not letting you go to medical school. What else are you interested in? Mm -hmm. And having pre-med advisors telling me that when I was 18 years old, basically crushing my dreams was so earthquaking. As somebody whose parents, like neither one of my parents are are physicians, and I understand that neither one of your, your parents are physicians either. Like it's hard for us out here. Yeah. No, like anything, it's a bit of luck. Yeah. You know, it it really is a bit of luck. You meet the right, you meet the right people at the right time, you know, but like with anything, you know, utilize your resources, you know, so pre podcast era, you know, I vividly remember just Google searching, like who has done this Air Force HPSP scholarship. And I actually came across, I figured this out like years later after I read the white coat investor. Yeah, I've heard of that. Exactly. So I, I stumbled across the white coat investor website and there was like a comment section on some blog. And this guy was talking about the white co-investor did the Air Force HPSB scholarship. He's an emergency medicine physician. So that was the link between those. And I just, I like made an account. I direct messaged this random guy with some username and we ended up talking on the phone. You know, he was like currently in his payback of some residency for Air Force. So once again, you know, you utilize your resources, you talk to as many people as you can before you make these decisions. And you know, everyone I, I feel like is willing to give advice, you know, in, in our career path, whether it's good advice or bad advice or relatable advice, 
you know, that's until they open their trap and say, yeah, you just, you just network. There's a lot that has to come together when your family or close friends aren't, you know, pre-med or physicians. I do agree. Yeah. I struggled with that a lot. I'm very like shy kind of, I think that I've grown a lot, but um, back in undergrad, I was like, I could never ask a doctor if I can shadow them. How dare I impede on them, ask them out of their busy schedule. And now for pre-meds that don't have connections, like I didn't have, I would just tell them, ask everybody at get as much info like you were saying get as much info as you can up front from people who are in it right now and podcasts are a great way to do that without having to leave your house obviously <laughs> yeah no absolutely and, and the last thing I'll say on this topic when I was on you know my medical school I was very fortunate you know I had a, a good number of, of medical school interviews and I still vividly remember the conversations I had with current students and I remember there was someone I, I talked to on the phone uh, who was in the Army HPSP scholarship actually from Midwestern Chicago but I remember it was still in that time I, I hadn't gotten into you know school yet I just made connections you know from my interviews and I just remember talking to him, whatever it was we were talking about. And uh, it was the first time I ever heard this piece of advice. And I still think this, think about this piece of advice to this day on a weekly basis. And it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. If you speak up and whatever it is, if you speak up, this is what you're interested in, whatever it might be, you will find a path to it. People will help you to it. You know, and I can name endless examples of where that has helped me out. So from getting letters of recommendation to getting to shadow, it's the squeaky wheel. You know, if you call that physician office weekly, they'll end up letting you in the shadow. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just squeaky wheel, man. It'll get the grease. Did you ever encounter anyone whenever you were seeking advice that maybe told you don't apply to DO programs? And how did that go? Yeah, off the top of my head there. So so no, uh, I will say no, I, I did not get a bunch of slack, you know, for for mentioning DO. And I think it was the it was all because of the university I went to. So Michigan State University, it's actually the what's it's kind of unique. It's the only university that has an MD and a DO program. And so being at a pre-med, being at a pre-med institution where there was that um, and me being an athletic training major, you know, for two years, it was the DOs, you know, who were kind of running it. You know, that being said, regardless, there's DOs within sports medicine nationally. And just th those were the letters I saw always. So it's kind of interesting looking back on that time because I never remember anyone mentioning the allopathic institution at Michigan State. Everyone I always met, they were always, you know, gotten to the DO school or were a current DO student, which is kind of interesting. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I worked and I volunteered at a summer camp in Southern California for children with various chronic medical conditions. And they partner with UC, with a Mattel Children's Hospital, UCLA and CHLA, Children's Hospital, Los Angeles and San Diego Children's Hospital. Most uh, physicians and resident physicians who would come up from those institutions were MDs. You know, Southern California is kind of one of these spots where although Western Comp Pomona is a very old institution, that's one among these very big names, you know, so at those more academic hospitals, it just makes sense that there was more MDs that would come up. And uh, I just remember talking with, you know, she was a, a fourth year internal medicine resident at USC LA County. And I just remember we were chatting about pre-med and that stuff. And um, I asked her about, hey, you know, I want to apply to osteopathic institutions. And I don't exactly remember what she said, but it was kind of negative vibes. And looking back on it, it's the the basic principle of if you don't, if you've never met the other party, you're afraid of that other party. You know, I'm Jewish. Why would someone in uh, North Carolina, in a rural town, 
the anti-Semitic posting on the web, these anti-Semitic things, if they've never met someone who's Jewish, you know, it's just because they've never met them and they're afraid. It's a very, very simple thing. Xenophobia, yeah. Xenophobia, exactly. So that's the lens that I think most individuals uh, who open their mouth and have something to say about the osteopathic profession and trying to prevent or say something negative about the osteopathic profession. I think it's because they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so that was really the only comment. Yeah, I I remember it not even being on my radar. Like I wasn't even, I didn't even know what DIA was. And then I done a lot of work with the Division of Plastic Surgery at University of Florida. And she was obviously an MD, but she was very much my mentor. And she would tell me, you know, like, you should apply to DO. And I was like, oh, I, d- I didn't know what it was. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. And a couple months went by and I wasn't, I wasn't getting any MD attention. And I saw a DO on my floor of where I was working. I was, I worked on a cardiology unit mm-hmm. and I saw a nephrologist. She was a DO and I was like, can I just, same thing, squeaky wheel gets the grease. I literally tracked her down. and was like, hey, can I talk to you? And she was like, yeah, sure. She ended up being one of the most personable and coolest doctors I'd ever seen at that point. And she literally invited me after a day of shadowing to Panera. She reviewed my entire CV with me and she was like, you should apply to DO school. It's amazing. I was just like, this literally changed my entire life. Just that one interaction. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. No, I, I have the chills right now. I know I, I have the chills right now because I we all have, have stories that are very relatable to that. And, you know, it's like reflecting on it. It's and I, I was talking about this today with my dad. He my dad, you know, this morning he had a new PCP through Kaiser and he's a DO and he's like, oh, my God, he's a DO. This is crazy. It's the first DO I've ever met besides you. And there's just less of us. That's all it is. You know, these days um, I was very involved with with national student leadership on the osteopathic level. You know, I've witnessed the massive uptick in students and now residents over the past five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years because of all these new osteopathic institutions that have popped up. So I'm I'm actually very intrigued when you and I are in our early sixties and we're still associated with a residency program, or maybe we have students coming and rotate with us and we pick their brains, you know, and we hear how many of their interactions through either pre-med or even growing up just as a kid, we're actually with a DO because there's just less of us, but we've been out there for quite some time, just kind of hidden in the bushes and I think hidden behind those big names. So even though you're at the University of Florida, you just didn't realize if you look at maybe the the big board next to the elevator of all the physician offices that there was a few, few DOs sprinkled in there. Yeah. And I literally had no, I had no idea until she, te- she told me and then, oh, it was on my radar for, you know, it like I started looking around at people's name badges. Cause I mean, everyone's just says doctor, unless you look at like the smaller print and then it actually says their name and then their credentials. And I was starting to see DOs everywhere. And I would just ask them, where did you go to, where did you go to med school? And I, I got all kinds of answers like PCOM, um, University of North Texas, Michigan State, really good, amazing DO schools. And they were just normal doctors because we are normal doctors. And I think that that is the mission for for this entire podcast um, to show that like DOs can go into very specialized fields. Like you're in surgery. I'm applying for neurology. I know people in my class who have already matched into ophthalmology and urology. We're out here and we exist. And as DO programs keep popping up, I mean, there's 38 accredited programs now, but the class sizes are so much larger. 
than our counterpart MD programs that I believe that sooner or later, there's probably going to be as many DO graduates as there are MDs, hoping that residency spots increase as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and, and just briefly to touch on that, you know, I, I don't want to say the the stigma. I think it's more just the lack of knowledge that DOs can match in anything you know, in the 2022 match, let's say a student, you know, actually it's a, a fact, a student from um, KCU, Kansas City, their Joplin campus matched in a neurosurgery. That was not the first DO to match into a neurosurgical program. DO neurosurgery has been around for, for decades, you know, and so it's similar like any lack of knowledge, stigma, whatever you want to call it of like, oh, I don't know if a DO can go into this. Buddy, you have the internet right in front of you. How about you just search yeah. for 35 minutes and see if you can figure a few things out. You'll stumble on behalf of all the prior AOA accredited residencies in all specialties. You'll then stumble upon, you know, this thing called the merge, you know, and that there's yeah. all the the AOA and ACGME accredited. Like, you know, once again, anyone that says anything, I think within our realm of the house of, of medicine and they're saying it under like a negative lens, looking at DOs, I think you should fact check them. You know, most people have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. So with that, did you, did you take step one and step two in addition to the required level one and level two? That's a great question. I absolutely did. I, I talked to as many people as I, I could get my hands on you know, through those first two years and you don't have to, you know, I, I want to reiterate that you don't have to. Um, for me, the advice that I chose to listen to was just that I didn't want to close any doors. You know, I, I didn't want to be, I, I didn't, I didn't know what program directors were going to think, you know, and, and after speaking with program directors, you know, they have to be a little bit political, right? They can't say, to a DO student, if you don't take this, I'm not going to look at your application. Most of them are going to be kind of nice and say, oh, blah, blah, blah. But like at the end of the day, for me, I looked at it as an opportunity to actually uh, have a, a step up on those those uh, MD colleagues I'd be applying against if that opportunity arose in an interview and in a conversation. If they asked me, you know, hey, why you versus the next guy? That was just another thing I had in, in my little fanny pack that I could pull out. Um, and say, well, buddy, I put I put twice the work in. You know, I had to learn a, a whole other curriculum. And uh, oh, by the way, I had to travel to two different states. You know, just to take uh, both my exams in the same week. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to talk about commitment, if you want to talk about grit, if you want to talk about belief in yourself, buddy, I got a bunch of different examples. You know, I could show. So once again, I, I think um, being able to to spin these these things. Uh, into just opportunities, I, I think uh, it's really important to have that mindset. That's a great way to put it. I didn't even think about that. And I think that as DO students, we often don't think about that. We think about it as, oh, I have to take this other test, not I get to take this other test and I get to prove that I am just as good as the MD candidate who's applying alongside me. Yeah, if not better, because hey, we actually had to, you know, learn a whole other curriculum of OMT. <laughs> That's like you look at our credit hours. You know what I mean? If if you want to go toe to toe, 
I was right down the road from Rush, Northwestern, like yeah. buddy, I'll go nose to nose if you want to roll up these credit hours of things that we had to do in those two years of academia. And, and we just did more. There's no other way around it. So I'm, I'm really proud to be a DO for several reasons. And, and those two years were pretty gnarly. And so I'm, I'm really proud to yeah. have taken both those exams. Yeah. Then they, they do test different things. Step one, I felt was pretty similar to level one, mm-hmm. but level two and step two were so different. They were just very, very different tests. One was, you know, more, more analytical, but the level two was so much ethics and so much OMT and so much mm-hmm. just, are you a good person? How would you react in this kind of situation? And for me, it was so great to have both of those tests because they were testing two different things. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. And, and now having the, you know, I took my, my level three in the fall my oh my, was it great to only have to take, you know, one of these acronyms of just Comlex and not Comlex and USMLE. So I'm happy they're behind me. That's for sure. <laughs> it's a stressful, stressful time to be out there. For um, for fellowship, are you planning on doing a fellowship from surgery? Uh, at this time, uh, I don't think so. No, you know, I, I didn't know going into my third year rotations, I would be a general surgeon. Here I am now, 26 months later, 27, 28 months later from those surgery rotations, really passionate about this field. So, so what did you think you... What did you think you wanted to do if it wasn't like, walk me through this? Yeah. So, you know, some unsolicited advice to, to students, whether it's pre-med or, or someone heading their, th- their third year here in the spring, just keeping an open mind. Things will become clear to you when you enter those rotations. And I do think it's of extreme importance to not only talk to the residents, but talk to the attendings because you are not going to be a resident forever, but you're going to be an attending for quite some time. Um, so really hearing about their lives um, and kind of who you vibe with is important, you know, so kind of getting a vibe of the culture, you know, and the types of personalities. I do think that's important since chances are those going to be your colleagues. Um, so having an open mind is important, but I had no idea. You know, I, 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 I did think I was going to be a surgeon. Uh, I thought I was actually interested in neurosurgery. I always, you know, was fascinated with the nervous system. I was always fascinated with the brain. Um, I just think cognition is is really um, unique. You know, working at that that camp I mentioned earlier with children with various chronic medical conditions, uh, you know, one of them, you know, we had a, a special diagnosis week and those children with cerebral palsy, hydrocephalus, uh, various genetic things that were, were wrong with them from a neurological standpoint. It was, I just had great relationship, great relationships with those campers and their family members and so I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll be in my mind. I was like, maybe I'll become a, a pediatric, you know, neurosurgeon. And I didn't really understand neurosurgery was actually mostly spine surgery. I didn't know nothing about it. So anyways, I, I go into my uh, third year rotations and I tried to get medicine and surgery first. And I did. And then uh, medicine was super boring. It was it was beautiful. It's a beautiful art. But my rotation itself was just really, really boring. I didn't meet passionate residents. I didn't meet passionate attendings. I had a, a pretty you know, not great experience. It didn't impress me. And then I got to surgery. I worked with some great attendings. Uh, The residents I worked with, kind of impressive to me, but I rotated with uh, residents at a large MD institution. And there was six of us on our general surgery rotation, two MDs and four DOs. And the field of surgery was just beautiful to me. Um, And I really, I really liked the interactions I was witnessing between the attendings and their patients. And then uh, four weeks of general surgery was great. Two weeks of colorectal surgery was phenomenal. I, I met phenomenal people. 
I was finally on my two week neurosurgery rotation that I was waiting for, for like eight years. And, uh, this was the height of COVID. And after four hours on that Monday morning, we got an email stating that all students working at Cook County hospital in Chicago, weren't allowed to come back due to COVID rates increasing. So I got bumped off my neurosurgery rotation four hours in, and, uh, I, I tried my hardest to, uh, get another rotation, you know, over the next eight weeks leading into winter break and no hospitals were taking students. So, you know, the, the night before, uh, uh that Sunday night, uh, my fiance Bridget and I were, were on a walk and I was like, you know what, if these two weeks don't blow my mind, I think general surgery is the right way to go. Cause I had a phenomenal six weeks leading up to it. So it was just kind of one of those things that, you know, fell, fell into place. I didn't want to put all my eggs in a basket if I didn't know how that basket looked like, smelled like, tasted like. I didn't feel that talking to people on the phone or watching YouTube videos were enough to allow me to dedicate my life to this career if I, I couldn't get exposure to it. So uh, it was just kind of one of those things that, you know, life came together and, you know, you have to make decisions, right? Yeah, I just want to touch on just really quick, though, something, you know, was really beautiful to me is uh, surgeons take extreme ownership for their patients. You know, uh, if you operate on a patient as forever your patient, um, even if that individual comes back to a group, sure, your colleagues may see that person when they're on call or if you're on vacation, but that's always your patient. And so just being able to be a really nice person to someone who's in a kind of a gnarly situation if they're having surgery, that's a non-elective surgery at the hospital. You have to swoop in at the right time and make critical decisions and you have to do it with grace and you have to be really sensitive to people and you have to be a good communicator and you have to be a good team leader. You have to be a great effective follower. And there was all these things that I always hoped I would find in the house of medicine, always going back to those things I learned growing up playing ice hockey. I found that within the house of surgery. And still to this day, I think about those lessons and being selfless, taking one for the team, stepping up for your teammates, you know, waking up early and working extremely hard for a result. And when the result doesn't go your way and you're facing adversity, that's okay. Have belief in yourself, have belief in your team that you know, you'll be able to bring this human to the, the best condition possible. I found all those traits come into life within surgery. And so for me, later in the, the interview, when we get to, you know, how's your life these days, you know, wellness, all that stuff, man, I just, I love the mission we're, we're on right now. You know, we're helping people in a, a really critical way, you know, and the conversations that you're able to, to have and the questions you're able to answer, or more importantly, not answer because you don't know the answer and you're able to honestly tell them that. And you'll work on getting them a good answer. You know, it makes me feel really good that we're doing our best on this short time on this planet for for another human. So, yeah. That's amazing. That was so good. <laughs> I'm just like shook. Um, okay. I love that you found surgery. Like that sounds like you really found what you wanted to do. And without a lot of regret, it sounds like you are, you know, you're really happy with your decision Something that that really bothers me about medical education right now is is the fact that, you know, as medical students, we don't get exposure to a lot of different fields. And you kind of alluded to it, how your your neurosurgery rotation was was swept under the rug, you know, like it was cut away from you. And you don't know what that would have been like. And obviously, it sounds like you're super happy and stuff. But mm -hmm you know, talking with some students about, you know, they don't know what they want to do. And it is almost it's it's March of 2023. And they're a third year and they don't know what they want to do. Because there's so many 
electives that they never got to experience. And so that's just something that I am personally frustrated by in the medical education, how it's impossible basically to have exposure to every field of medicine before you make this lifetime decision. Yeah. Say la vie though, right? Like that is life. You know, it's, it's tough. It's not, per, you know, it's not perfect. Yeah. Once again, right. If, if that's a thing, okay, well, how do we modify that? I think that we modify that through platforms like this being introduced to people of various specialties. Who do you jive with? Oh, they said something that kind of jive with me. Now it's up to that person to make sure that that their squeaky wheels are heard, you know, and, until they're until they're greased up, right? And so similar to these kids who in undergrad commit to medical school and then like six years later regret it. For whatever reason they did that and they felt that they had to do it now and they had to push and they had to do it quickly for whatever pressures from themselves, family, whatever. It's tough. It's not perfect. Uh, I do like that being said, though, specifically of the lens of medical students need to be introduced to more things specifically. DO students need to be introduced to more things because chances are they're not at the large tertiary center. They might be, but chances are they're not squeaky wheels, man. You know what I mean? Like you have, you have that, that M1, M2 after your name, all of a sudden you're not a pre-med, you know, these, these physicians and surgeons are more than willing for you to come shadow them um, on a weekend or, or whatever it might be. So uh, it is ultimately up to that student, but because it's it's tough, you know, the, the way things are, you're right, it's tough. So definitely, but yeah, I, I think if a student is hungry, um, they will be exposed to to quite a lot. That's a good saying, you know, for med students, especially DO students who don't have that exposure to large academic centers is stay hungry, stay squeaky. Stay squeaky. Yeah. Say say you want to do a neurosurgery rotation like I did. And I was in a small, small town in Johnson City, Tennessee. And there's one group of neurosurgeons in the entire city, but it wasn't affiliated with my school. I just asked. I asked so many times until I finally convinced one, the preceptor to precept me and two, my school to allow this preceptor to precept me. And that's how that's how I got that rotation done. And so I think for DOs, like a lot of us have this this attitude, um, which is squeakiness. Mm-hmm. Like we are we are hungry. We are people who academics in general, like all med students, are kind of. But you know, you got to get things done. Yeah, there's definitely a balance. But when it comes to the blink of an eye, that is your third year of medical school, and then towards the end of that blink, you need to somehow put together a fourth year schedule. Um, You don't really have a lot of time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, it's a stressful time, but I like, if I can do it, trust me, anyone listening, you can do it. Yeah. You just got to make it happen. That's all. That's exactly how I feel. And I mean, I think that it is normal. I don't know if this was your experience, but for me, right before I hit submit on Eris, I had a meltdown. I was like, what if neurology isn't my thing? What if there's something else out there that like, maybe that's just me because I'm super type A. But I was like, I would never know what if this was my other calling and I had no idea. I mean, obviously, I love neurology. Neurology is my life um, at this point. It is nerve wracking. So I don't know if you had any like last minute nerves leading up to submission. Yeah, no, I mean, I I did. But you have to remember, like, if you don't vibe with something after eight months, you're not going to be the first resident to switch out. 
you know, so like our system is not perfect. Nothing in the world is perfect. No system is perfect. So with like the little bit of data, the little bit of opinion you have, the little bit of exposure and the little bit of time, but you have to make like this big decision. Yeah. It's like every year people make, you know, the wrong decision and then they end up finding something that works. And then they're really happy. You know, how many stories have you heard of, oh yeah, I was in my third year of surgery residency and I bailed. And now I'm a family med doc and I love it. You know, the more people you talk to, you know, the more you find out, the more you find out. So, you know, that being said, yes, would it be a massive headache that my fiance who's in my class matched where I was in Ohio and then eight months into my residency in Ohio, I decided I didn't want to do this. Yeah, it would be a headache, but whatever, you know, it, it would work out long term because people do it all the time. People do it all the time. So, you know, once again, just like you got to chill out. <laughs> it's like, it'll be fine. It's going to work out. You know, you just, you know, you just need to experience it for you to ultimately know how you feel and you need to go with your hunch. And if your hunch was wrong, whatever, it'll get figured out. That's so true. Uh, this is just a side note. I listen to this relationship advice podcast. It's not just about relationships. And um, they say all the time on the podcast, like if you are upset about living in a city and you want to move back to your hometown, you can always break a lease. Like people break leases all the time. People quit their jobs and switch careers all the time. You would not be the first. And that is such good advice for people going going through this process because I mean, I met an an ex neurosurgeon last week who was my family med preceptor. I had no idea that he was a DO neurosurgery resident. He went through, I think, three years and then switched to family medicine and loves his life. But it's like people do this all the time. And that's a that's another thing that I that I love about this podcast is just talking with people and getting all of this, the stuff that nobody wants to talk about. (laughs) Like nobody says openly, but they should, they should be more open. Yeah. And you know, there's no, like, even if you've always wanted to become, you know, a neurologist, you get like, you may get X amount of years into that career and be like, you know what? Like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. To me, it comes back to having the beautiful opportunity of going to medical school with these letters after your name and the licensure you develop. You don't, you can like, we have job security forever. True. You know, you can find a plethora, a plethora of jobs within the world, within the States, within your county, within your town that have nothing to do with seeing patients, nothing. And you still have a great paying job. Yeah. You know, so to me, it, it was just such a beautiful opportunity that I even got into medical school because I knew if I just pushed and even if I didn't score well on my exams, but I passed, I knew that I was doing something that was going to pay off for me for and my family. And, and it's purely because job security. So I, I think I even thought about that, too, where, OK, sure, I become a surgeon. But then what if I become a burnt out surgeon? You know, what if, what if my, my relationship is on the line because of work? Well, then we'd reevaluate that's 12 years from now. I, I, you know, I can't not do something that I'm passionate about because of fear for whatever it might be. We'll just deal with it when that comes up. And I know that if the best thing for me at that time is switching out of seeing patients, you can do that. So it's a tough situation trying to find the specialty you want in a little bit of a lot of time, the little bit of exposure we have, but you're fine. You're going to have job security for quite some time. And that's a very beautiful thing in the world we live in. 
And speaking of job security, you underwent the military match, which is like the best job security, honestly. I did not personally do that. So I only participated in the NRMP. But what was what was the match process like going through military match? So just for, for anyone who, you know, is listening and has never heard of, oh, you can be a military student, or do you have to be in the military, like kind of how that works. So, so as I mentioned, if you're listening early in the podcast, and this is as of February 26, 2023, at this time, the Air Force, the Navy and the Army each have a health profession scholarship program, HPSP. There are also other programs that each military branch has that aren't just this program. You can apply to the HPSP uh, once you get into medical school. You don't have to be prior military or anything like that. I was not prior military. What the scholarship program does is it pays full tuition. Whatever school you go to, it doesn't matter. It pays full tuition for all four years. Um, you can't do uh, a dual program like a, M- like a DO PhD or DO uh, MPH or DO MBA just a a DO or an MD, and they give you a monthly stipend each month. And they also give you a signing bonus uh, at the beginning of medical school. I completely lived off that. I bought a car, uh, paid for my medical school. I'm debt free. Uh, It's a phenomenal opportunity. And then depending on the branch that you're in and depending on the specialty that you choose to apply to, you might go through the NRMP uh, civilian match, but you definitely go through the military match. Each branch is different of how they run it. And that being said, from my experience, even each branch, each specialty is different. So, you know, I can't speak to the the Navy OB-GYN match, but I can definitely speak to the Air Force military match for general surgery. And to be honest with you, Michael, a lot of it was kind of behind the scenes that I don't really know about. Similar to the NRMP match, uh, you have an application of a plethora of things from your, your dean's MSPE letter to your GPA to uh, letters of recommendation to personal statement to your rotations, uh, to your interview. There is a limited number of Air Force general surgery programs comparably to the whole general surgery programs across the country. So there's obviously less. And the students in the Air Force general surgery match are either the students from USIS, the military's medical school in DC, um, and all HPSB Air Force students uh, from all MD and DO schools. So you don't know how many people are applying each year, similar to the RMP. And there's only a specific number of spots, um, you know, that come out each year on this document. There is like a 60% match rate for Air Force general surgery. Um, so it was very nerve wracking going into it and having that belief that things would work out was was really key for, for me and my fiance. I went and I rotated at two military programs. Uh, you, only have, you only have two military rotations that you do in your early fourth year. So I, I did those at two general surgery programs. And the first one was here in Dayton, Ohio at, at Wright Pat, Wright State University. And I loved it. Uh, this is a, a program that's half filled through the military match through Air Force, half filled through the civilian NRMP match. It's a unique program. And uh, I just loved it. You know, it was beautiful. And what I'll, I'll touch on briefly is as a DO, you know, going into general surgery, when you look around the nation, where are DO, you know, general surgery programs housed out of? Most of the time, they're housed out of uh, community hospitals who are not, you know, level one trauma centers, and they don't have every subspecialty under the sun, you know. And so, DO general surgery programs, in my opinion, and from my experience talking to people, produce phenomenal general surgeons who can think through a multitude of surgical issues 
and get a patient off the table quickly and effectively. General surgery is a pathway to plastics, vascular trauma, transplant, a whole plethora of things. Something that I found, uh, which was very unique to me, was that when you take a, a Northwestern general surgery resident who's in their early fourth year, and you compare it to the only DO general surgery program in town based on the South side at Franciscan Olympia Fields, the fourth year at Olympia Fields, who's the DO, they can do a lot of great general surgery procedures pretty independently. The attendant can step back. They can perform it adequately and autonomously. And those are just the bread and butter, you know, general surgery procedures, you know, like gallbladders, appendectomies, colon resections, you know, you can go down the list. And when you're at a a large, you know, academic center, they, you know, are rotating under a lot more subspecialty uh, rotations and that they have a larger chain of command ahead of them, such as fellows, you know, or attendings that are not producing as much autonomy. So it was interesting that, you know, oh, you might think I need to be at Rush. I need to be at Northwestern to become a good general surgeon. Absolutely not. You know, if you want to be a, a general surgeon, as a DO, go into these grittier programs where they're figuring it out and doing less with more. They were more impressive to me. And sure, I might be a little bit biased, but that was the vibe that I got. So when I got to this program, uh, I was very impressed, you know, with the residents. I vibed with the residents. Everyone was like pretty happy, you know, which was pretty cool to see. And so that's that's my long-winded spiel of, you know, how the, the military match was. And it was the vibe. You know, I felt the vibe and I followed it. I think that the vibe is, it's kind of a cliche, but honestly, it's so real. Wherever you feel the most welcome and the most supported, and that's definitely how I made my rank list. I mean, at this point we that this podcast comes out, we won't know um, where I match, but... I am pretty solid with my top five are all places that like I just I went there physically and got a vibe on on who the attendings were and what the what the resident life was like. And it sounds like that is how you feel is like the most the most important part is like the whole vibe of your your attendings, especially. And then that autonomy and that's a whole other like big topic is at these big academic centers where they have lots of fellows. It's hard to kind of get your your foot in the door. Like um, I know for neurology, if if you're on stroke service and you're a PGY2, you could run that stroke. But if there's a vascular fellow on service that day, that vascular fellow gets that stroke. You don't get that stroke. So like you were saying, it's just at these grittier programs, you learn a lot more. It's a lot more like sink or swim a little bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that definitely makes you makes you think on your feet a little bit better, makes you, you know, ask the right questions. It humbles you a little bit because you realize that, oh, shoot, if I don't know the answer, I have to be up front, not know the answer and figure it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I was I was just very impressed. You know, that's really all I can say is I was very impressed with the senior level residents at DO programs that I rotated at. And I'm I wasn't as impressed, you know, looking back as a third year at, at the large MD residency I was at. And and similar when I was a fourth year, I was at another large MD residency, wasn't as impressed. And it's just kind of interesting to think back to that of how I felt looking, specifically looking at the senior level, you know, residents um, from an operative and, and confident standpoint. And it it purely speaks to just exposure. Yeah. And that's what I, I always tell, you know, I, I tell the the class below me and the class below them is, you know, keep a journal when you're on these rotations, because it sounds like 
you know, it's so easy to like look back, um, but having kind of a written down version of what you experienced when you were at different programs, say you went to a big program versus a community program and how you felt on the day to day, having that in your back pocket when you go to rank or find which specialty you want, whatever the decision is, having that journal is so pivotal. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a phenomenal piece of advice. So um, did you prepare for PGY1 in any way? Like, how, what was your transition like as a fourth year? And then, you know, you're kind of skating by after after March, and then all of a sudden you're a doctor. Like, what was that like? Yeah. Um, and so uh, military match was actually December 8th of my fourth year. So I was told I was going to be a, a categorical Air Force resident for five years in Dayton, Ohio in December. Oh. So, you know, for me, uh, we were working on getting my girlfriend at that time, but soon after fiance interviews in Dayton, um, we were trying, you know, just to put together that map. And we had been putting together the map for a whole year because we had no idea what was going to happen. We were doing a lot of work. I was doing a lot of work just trying to support her and help figure things out for us leading up to, you know, through interview season up to March, you know, for rankless. But kind of, you know, how I prepared for PGY one year was, you know, I'd say twofold. One of them from like the student transitioning to resident, but then also as just like knowing this was the last stretch of not as gnarly time, you know, for the next rest of my life. So as a student, I, I changed my rotations a little bit, but because of the high chance I wasn't going to match through the military match and I would have to do a prelim year, I set up a very difficult and challenging back end to then show, you know, the following year programs I spoke with in my application that I didn't slack off, you know, in my fourth year, look at all these things that I did. You know, I had a few surgical ICU rotations and blah, 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 but regardless, I matched. So I changed it up a bit. Um, I had to do one outpatient osteopathic uh, manipulative therapy, OMT slash like FM rotation. So that was just a requirement. But then other than that, I did two months of internal medicine. I figured this was the last time I was ever going to be around, you know, medicine folk versus surgical folk. So I wanted to soak up as much as I could since they're the brainiacs, you know, of the field for sure. So I, I did that, which was lovely. And then I did a, a wound uh, rotation. I felt that surgeons should be pretty good at knowing stuff about wounds. So I should do that. And then I took vacation. In the time when I was doing all those rotations, online med ed, a doctor, I think it's like Dustin something, they have an intern content section. Michael, I would highly suggest you do that as well. I watched those videos. I outlined all of them and uh, I felt that that was a way I could stay relevant. And then the other side of non-academic, but just kind of hanging out. Obviously, I had to set up my life you know, in Ohio, but I proposed to Bridget. We focused a lot on wedding planning. Um, so we really seized the time that we had. We took a vacation all throughout those rotations, just, you know, spending time with friends in Chicago. We were training for a marathon too. So um, we had a lot going on. Once again, was just trying to enjoy knowing that I wasn't a resident yet. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful chapter. And now that you are a resident, well, first of all, congrats on all of the wonderful life things that you have going on. You have this fiance and she's also... A resident that's just awesome you guys are a power couple yeah uh but what is it like now that you have entered residency you know it's it's february at this point but so you have several months under your belt what's your day-to-day -day life of a pgy1 surgery resident like 
Yeah, it's awesome. It is it is an absolute adventure every day. Every day you learn something and then you learn more things. It's it's wild. Um, but what I will say about, you know, transitioning to residency as a student, like a third and fourth year student, like that's a hard job. You know, each month you totally switch jobs and every team you work under has different expectations. And then people within that team have different expectations. No one tells you the expectations. Yeah. You know, it's, it is a very tough job. And then by day 22 of your 30 day rotation, you finally know what's going on. Everyone knows your name. You figured out how to be helpful. And then boom, you start over again. You know, so finally showing up and like people are relying on you to do your job and take care of patients and people know your name, literally just hearing your name is like, whoa. (laughs) So finally, like having a spot was amazing. Like a seat at the table for the first time. Just a seat at the table for the first time. It is just so (laughs) beautiful. It is. And people, it's like they're like your chain of command. It's their job to teach you. As a student, you're just so hungry. You don't want to ask too many questions because you, but you're like, you want to ask, you know, and then like, you finally ask and like, you don't have a lot of time. But now it's like, it's their job to teach you. And that felt really good. Yeah. And often, often like preceptors, you know, at M3, M4, they're not as invested in you as a physician, especially because half the rotations, you know, you wanting to go into surgery, if you went on your pediatrics rotation, that preceptor knows that you probably don't want to do pediatrics. So like they're less invested in teaching you all there is to do for peds or less invested in you as a physician as a whole. Whereas like now your attendings, literally their whole job is to make sure that you become a good doctor and a good doctor under the roof of your university hospital or air force mm-hmm. hospital. Yeah. A thousand percent. It's, it's a, it was a beautiful transition. There was, you know, those first four days, you know, I I started off on vascular surgery and I vividly remember coming around the corner and I was tearing up, you know, that those first three, four days, just driving up to the hospital, just like, I finally made it, you know, I've been chipping away for for 10 years, you know what I mean? Just to like, hopefully be a doctor, you know, and you think back to, you know, what we thought like would bring us happiness, what we thought, you know, we'd like go to sleep easy every night and feel fulfilled. And really, it's not like when you're we were pre-meds having those thoughts, it wasn't medical school. I, I think it really was residency. Like, that's what we were hoping for. It's like we weren't hoping to be a student for longer. Sure, we were hoping to get to school, but like we were hoping to be a doctor. Right. We've all interacted with residents who are tired and unhappy. And like, I think they need to open their eyes a little wider. You know, they've finally gotten to the point that they've been hoping to get to for quite some time. So yeah, it, it was a beautiful transition. But yeah, day to day, you know, it depends on the, the rotation I'm on. The dichotomy of, of last month to this month is phenomenal. You know, I was on our, our trauma day rotation last month, you know, so last block was from early January to the end of January. And then the block I'm on now is from early February to early March. Um, and at the end of the third week of January, we had our national in-service training exam. So all general surgery residents across the whole nation take this exam. You know, so what my life looked like was, you know, we had a sign out from the night team at 530. And usually I'm, I'm at the hospital at five and I'll start chart check it at 501. But because sign out isn't until 530, I had a beautiful 30 minutes of protected time. So I'd get to the hospital at five, I'd pour my coffee, you know, a little to-go cup, and I would do flashcards on my phone for those 25 minutes and then walk over to sign out. 
right after, you know, even during sign out, there could be a trauma activation that comes in and everyone has to leave and go to the trauma bay. And it would just, it would be mayhem, you know, from 5.30 a.m. Uh, just nonstop until, you know, sign out was at 6 p.m. But a lot of the times, you know, you wouldn't be able to make it to sign out. You don't have to send one person from the team because we're in the operating room. Oh my or gosh. Responding to a trauma activation, some on the floor. It was crazy. You know, our, our, there was two teams. Our list was anywhere during the wintertime. It's a bit slower. So it's about 60 to 70 people. But during the summertime, it's 100 to 115 people. And so it's, it's just gnarly. You know, it is, it is literally nonstop. And then now all of a sudden this month I'm at the VA and uh, there's three patients, four patients on our list. Um, it's a lot of clinic, you know, and I am, I'm, I'm loving life, you know, from the nonstop to all of a sudden you can like take things slow and it's a beautiful transition. So the day to day is, is early mornings and at times unexpectedly late afternoons and evenings, um, depending on what time surgery rolls back, if an emergency comes in, late consult comes in, whatever it may be. And it's a lot of fun as a student, when I was on a general surgery rotation and then the two weeks I was on colorectal, we were just all over the hospital. And, you know, one of the things I vividly remember of how much fun the rotation was, was one second we're in the ER seeing kind of a critical console. And then we're, you know, running over to the operating room to fill in the team. And then we're running the ICU to check on another one of our patients. We're seeing patients on the floor. We're running a clinic to see people. And then back to the operating room. I just remember having a lot of fun. There was so much variation, you know, that I saw within the lives of surgeons and general surgeons and whatever. And I'm now living that. And uh, it's a lot of fun running down to the ER, you know, finding the patient radiology, going up to the ICU, doing all the things that I witnessed as a student. It's an absolute blast. I love my life. I love that you love your life. That sounds like a, a lot, like you're actually doing a lot, even as a, as a PGY1. Um, and that was one of my questions was, do you find yourself doing a lot of like scut work? You know, um, I mean, I used to watch Grey's Anatomy a lot. You know, the first years, the interns, they always had to do all the stuff that nobody wanted to do. But it sounds like you're doing real life stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And specifically, just to kind of touch on that, that idea, that vibe of like, oh, the first year does the scut work, like whatever it may be. Once again, we're all part of a team, you know, and when you look at the job descriptions, it is not, you know, let's say the, the OR schedule for the day, there's simultaneous 730 cases rolling back, there's simultaneous 1015 cases rolling back, there's simultaneous 230 and then one 4pm case, and the team is made up of three residents, a fifth year, a third year and the first year, what do you think the first year's role is going to be probably not in the operating room helping the attendings with complex cases, you know, especially in September. Right. Uh, it's, it's the intern role to be uh, holding the phone, you know, responding to, to things going on. That's the job description. Like, you know, specifically, you know, looking at those rotations where, you know, just for example, like a general surgery rotation where it was exactly that, man, I, I take so much pride in holding that phone and, and doing that scout work for the team because, you know, you have to hold it down. Like that's your job. You know, the, the team is locked in the operating room, taking care of a human being. Yeah. Who's going to be the one that needs to fill out the discharge paperwork? Probably the person outside the operating room. So yeah. um, sure, there there's a, a whole lot of, of, of that type of work to do. But the vibe within our residency, what I would say probably, you know, most residencies I interacted with as a student, upper level residents are making the first years to do their work, but they can just do it quicker. So it might seem like they don't have as much to do. It's definitely a lot of uh, running around on the floor, you know, putting out fires where I'm doing a lot of things where I'm like third 
person looking at myself, you know, and I'm like, whoa, I can't believe, you know, I'm doing this right now. And I already had a, a rotation where, you know, I ran my own service, you know, in years prior, it was a fifth year and a first year, but the way things shook this year with our, our fifth year chief class being smaller, um, this service is now just a one. So I was managing patients at two hospitals of just me and an attending and the attending kind of purposefully is a bit hands off. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, the attending purposely is a bit hands off if he trusts you. Man, there were a lot of, lot of nerves that month, let me tell you, but it's a lot of opportunity to step up and times where you're just like forced to grow up yeah. and it feels good to now be February 26th and maybe on the inside, you might be freaking out a little bit, but I've learned the lessons of you need to be cool as a cucumber because everyone's looking at you. My confidence level of being able to manage a new situation and figure things out is way higher than what it was because when you look at any type of resident, literally any type of specialty either, when like you really look at their day-to-day, they're just in new situations and they need to figure it out. From being at a new hospital and figuring out how to call someone in like a timely fashion mm-hmm. of like, how do I dial out of the phone system? You're just thrown in all these scenarios, like you just need to figure it out. Having the confidence to, yeah. to deal with, you know, tough situations, you know, it feels good because uh, they, they throw you in the fire pretty early, that's for sure. And I feel like surgery is so good at that. Just being cool as a cucumber. Every, every surgeon I've ever met in the operating room, at least, is just so chill and in the zone. And even as like a student where I'm like, oh my God, this patient is bleeding out. I'm like shaking, (laughs) holding a retractor, like, oh, what are we going to do? And like, obviously we start transfusing and it's just like that, that facade that, that y'all have that I, I respect so much. Like, whoa. (laughs) I will never forget on my gen surge rotation when I like dropped something um, or I messed up and I was like, oh, and my gen surge uh, preceptor was like, Michael, you can never say that in the operating room. (laughs) I was like, okay, never again. (laughs) So I just say "Ope" on the inside now. (laughs) Yeah. Just stay quiet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just on the inside. Yeah, there's 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 definitely a few there's definitely a few senior residents and a few attendings who I've you know, I work to emulate, you know, it's really important to stay calm. Because as you know, from our lives, we're just test takers for all these years, right? We were professional students for quite some time now. For sure. If you're like, not calm, you're not going to remember those last facts going into the exam room. If you're not calm, you're not going to you're not going to think through the question. Exactly. If you realize that you only have 12 minutes left and 20 questions, and it's your step one exam, you're probably not going to make some great decisions if you're freaking out. Yeah. So I think that when you ultimately get to rotations and then you ultimately get to residency, I think it's really important to kind of draw on some really tough things you've already done to help give you that confidence of like, you're going to be fine, you know? And yeah. I think some of that's important to hear too is, and some I tell all the students I'm working with, I'm, it's not the role of the first year to be the decision maker. It's the role of the first year to be the information person. They need the data. Like everyone looks to the first year for the data. If you don't have the data, like, man, you're doing your job wrong. You need yeah. to have the data. You're, you're the guy or the gal, whatever. Um, you're the one with the phone, your boots on the ground, you're seeing the console. It's like, you need to know everything. And then it's up to you to give your best assessment your best assessment, and then it's going to be wrong. Like there's aspects of it that are going to be wrong. That's the point of residency. 
But, you know, your seniors, like they're, they're just looking to you to have the info. To me, as long as I'm not holding on to critical information for too long and I'm passing things up the chain in a timely, concise and clear manner, I think I'm doing my job fine. And so to me, that is, has been a huge stress reliever. Do what's best for the patient always and pass information up the chain quickly when, when you know you shouldn't be the only one that knows something. And sure, you make mistakes and you might hold on to something a little bit longer than yeah. you should have. But as long as you're, you're making your decisions regarding the patient first mentality and you're not the only one that knows everything, that's your job. Yeah. And that relieves so much of the pressure of residency off of you. I feel like if you just understand your role in the team and add on to your roles as you work your way up the chain of command until you're like a chief resident, then honestly, like it's if it's not your job to know what to do in the exact plan, then that just relieves so much of the anxiety. I think that I should take that advice personally. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and and we talk a lot about loading the boat early, you know, and it's just like getting other people on board. You know, it's it's always okay to to call for a friend. That's all good. Yeah, and as we kind of like wrap up, what is a piece of advice that you were given maybe as a pre-med, maybe as a medical student that looking back, was probably misleading and you no longer subscribe to? You know, I was, I was blessed with some great advice. I really was. And, uh, you know, I, I really do think it, it goes back to, to what that I am resident at USCLA County said when I was at that summer camp. You know, that's really the only one that's blaring out at me, which is like, oh, I don't know if you should apply to DO school. I think that whenever someone says something confidently to you and, you know, speculating about the path that you're taking, I think that you should question where they're drawing that information from. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think that's kind of the bottom line of, of what I, I wouldn't you know, subscribe to is people who, who have no idea what they're saying, talking about something. And I feel like for, for pre-meds and especially now that social media is so big, you know, it's so easy to have all of this information coming at you from every angle and everyone seems so confident in what they're saying. Oh, yeah. And you might easily think, okay, well, that's correct because look at look at all of their credentials. Look at their social media account. They must know what they're talking about when in reality, I feel like a lot of people in medicine kind of fake it till they make it. So honestly, just question everything <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah, a lot of the personalities out there, I don't spend a lot of time listening to, but from what I've seen, I'm like, oh man, I wouldn't say that so confidently. <laughs> you know, I don't, that from my experience, I'm yeah. like, ooh, like that's kind of dangerous, but. Well, there's uh, there's so much nuance in everything in medicine. Exactly. And everyone has a different situation. So it's just, like I said, it's a little bit of luck. I feel like coming in contact with someone who you jive with and you know, the squeaky wheel will, will find that grease. They'll find someone, you know, who they jive with, the more people they talk to. But, you know, just on the flip side of that question, what I will say is what I continue to subscribe to is I, I had, you know, the one person I knew from like back home who ended up going into medicine, you know, I, I played this pickup hockey game every year when I was in college. After my sophomore year, you know, I came home and I was playing in that pickup game and I mentioned to some of my friends in the locker room, like, hey, I, I think I'm going to go pre-med. I'm going to try to go to medical school. Someone was like, oh, dude, like you should talk to Eddie. Eddie is is like in medical school in Colorado. So it was, it was my friend's older brother's friend's older brother. Like this was like a third party person who was like skating with us. And this guy, Eddie McDonald, Eddie Mack, like we still talk to this day. I called him today, left him a voicemail. He's at an orthopedic surgery program and he's a DO. 
and uh, he got in a very competitive like foot and ankle orthopedic surgery fellowship this last year. He's living his dream, living his best life. You know, Eddie was in his first year of medical school at Rocky Vista in Colorado when him and I started talking when I was uh, in college. And what, what Eddie said, I still think about to this day, and I pass this on to anyone who's reaching out for advice of friends, younger brothers, other students. It's if I can do it, trust me, you can do it. Eddie was, you know, he painted himself as to not be a special person. And he just involved himself with things that set him up to getting into medical school and then involved himself in things in medical school to get an orthopedic surgery. And he worked hard. He figured it out. He asked questions. He scored well. He did everything right. And he did everything right because he knew the timelines. He knew what he needed to do because he, he reached out and asked questions. You know, that's all he did. He wasn't the smartest person ever. He just asked people and figured it out. And Eddie's a normal guy, and and I still think about that to this day. So when I'm in tough situations, I still think about Eddie, you know, because if he can do it, you know, so can I. And, you know, that's that's what I subscribe to. It's, you know, just wake up early, you know, work hard and, and be positive and ask questions and reflect and you'll do things wrong, but it'll all be okay. That's great advice. And honestly, the most, like you said, he's just a normal guy. Those make the best physicians, in my opinion, because they are they are so relatable to their patients. And that's amazing advice. And with that, is there anything else that that you wanted to wanted to touch on before we wrap up? Anyone wanting to go into to general surgery, you know, feel free to uh, to reach out. It's a it's a great profession. I I think specifically general surgery. Anything medical students, you know, say they most of the time don't know what they're talking about. Oh, you're just going to be doing hernias and gallbladders and appendixes and you're never going to have a life and just none of that's true. So like with anything, uh, people love talking about what they don't know anything about. And so I think it's up to, to that student who might have an interest just to reach out to people and figure out what general surgery is because uh, it's a lot and you can do a lot with it um, and you can go a lot of different paths with it as well. So I think if you're interested in surgery, uh, figure out if you're really interested in it and then and then make the leap if, if you feel it's right. Definitely. How can people best contact you? Uh, by by email. You know, you can throw up my uh, Wright State University email. So I'll, I'll send that to you if you want to link that to the account. Uh, always more than happy to, to take an a email or, or a phone call. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast and spending the last hour with me. Um, it's been great. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at dear.do.pod. You can check out my official website, deardopod.com for blog posts, guides, and you can submit your questions about all things medical school. Support the continuation of this podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Cologne, recording and production by yours truly. And I hope to see you here next time.